Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Good morning, Mark. How are you? I am really well. You know, I spent the last uh, six months uh, when we would open our conversations for Ortho Joe whining about the weather. Yes. And it was 77 yesterday in, in Minnesota. So, but it did it did bring up a very, I get existential question for me that I'm concerned for you, mm-hmm. my dear friend. What do you do to keep your brain health up to speed when there's no ice chopped through and stay submerged for five minutes. How, <laughs> what do you do at this time of year? You just kind of melt. You just kind of melt away and you just enjoy enjoy what our, our seasons in Canada have to offer us. You know, see a lot, of, a lot of places don't have seasons. So they have nothing to look forward to, right? If it's just always 80 degrees and sunny, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's no, you know, it's nice to kind of have the negative 40 to appreciate, you know, the plus 20. Right? No, no, I, I, I get it. Healthy. Yeah, I get, I get it. But you've convinced me of the value of brain health for this ice submerged. Yeah, it does help. So what happens yeah, in I mean, the summer? So in the summer, honestly, I, uh, I just put it on pause, although I should get one of those ice baths, you know, you can get them, but it's a lot of work. So I just, I, I just let our seasons, you know, dictate my activities. Okay. Probably well, hopefully. Hopefully you don't undergo any, you know, slippage of your your high high mental acuity. Uh, no, no, not at all, not at all. But today, today we have a great discussion, as you know, Mark, about a very important topic. And if I could just take a second here to introduce Joey Silbert, who works at um, Ortho Evidence as one of our data scientists, and Joey has been doing a lot of work and a lot of thinking around the issue of uh, artificial intelligence and and the host of umbrella topics as machine learning and things that come under it. And I wonder just up front if we should be, you know, uh, thinking more deeply about how information is going to be handled because we are definitely in a new world. Like more than any other time, I think in my life, I feel we are headed towards something that I don't even know if we understand the implications of. Welcome, Joey, and thank you again for spending a bit of time with us. Thank you for having me and, and for the very kind introduction. Yeah, Joey, so l- last year around this time, I, I think it was, I don't know, 10 or 12 months ago, we had you on, uh, Ortho Joe, and, and you did a really, really good job with educating our audience uh, about the terminology surrounding artificial intelligence. So, but I don't think any of us really understand it anywhere near as, as well as you do. So if, just as a refresher, could I ask you to define a couple of terms that are appearing in our literature more and more frequently? So artificial intelligence, let's start with that. I've got three others after that. Uh, sure. So artificial intelligence is kind of like the big umbrella term that defines all the things that we are seeing today. And really, you can think of artificial intelligence as kind of the Star Trek vision, where you have computers making decisions, learning how to mimic human activity, and just sort of performing tasks. So, you know, it's sort of true to the name artificial intelligence. It's trying to make computers smart and be able to accomplish tasks and make predictions, things like that. Perfect. Machine learning. 
So uh, within the big umbrella of artificial intelligence is machine learning. So it's kind of the biggest uh, chunk that encompasses artificial intelligence. And it's really just like the, the set of tools that uh, are used to accomplish artificial intelligence tasks, if that makes sense. It's kind of, uh, you know, the collection of, of instruments that allow computers to learn. That's sort of what machine learning is. But, you know, in today's day and age, it's it's almost synonymous with artificial intelligence. So if you hear machine learning, you should think artificial intelligence. And when you hear artificial intelligence, you should think machine learning. They're almost essentially the same thing now. Thanks. Two more. Natural language processing. Yeah, so, so natural language processing is sort of a subfield of machine learning and artificial intelligence that's sort of focused on how do we process text or, you know, natural language. That's where the natural language comes from in the natural language processing. And it's a set of tools or it's a, it's a, it's a field focused on learning information from text and making predictions uh, from text and, you know, doing anything possible using text. And the last one, neural networks. So a neural network is, once again, so we have artificial intelligence. Under artificial intelligence, we have machine learning. And then under machine learning, we have neural networks. So a neural network is a type of model, type of machine learning model uh, that is used to accomplish you know, all of these tasks. So most natural language processing tasks are accomplished by some kind of neural network. And it's really sort of, you know, there are different kinds of machine learning models out there, but uh, neural networks have proven themselves to be the most powerful, and the most, you know, widespread and, uh, and the most used. So uh, it's not quite the same thing as machine learning, but uh, in most cases, I shouldn't say most cases, but in, you know, a lot of the power that we're seeing with machine learning comes from the, the use of neural networks. That's very helpful. If we have you on again, we may start with the basics just so our readers sure. are enough. But I think that last definition really is a nice segue into the large language models. And it's something that really has been keeping me occupied the last uh, five months. Uh, so, Mo, I'm going to ask you to take it from here. Yeah, I mean, so very, very helpful. But, you know, at a very, like, so there's a new language, you know, so Joe, we've talked about this back in the day, back in the 1990s, early 1990s, when the word evidence-based medicine came up, there were a whole bunch of terms that we just hadn't heard about, you know, confidence intervals and study validity and all these different approaches, you know, uh, concealment of allocation, things that, you know, that were new languages, but functionally we're asking fairly fundamental things that for most reasonable people, they'd say, oh, okay, I, I, I see why you do that. Is, is, isn't a lot of the analysis that we're doing a lot of just what we used to call regression analysis, but it's done at a very high level because systems now can run them at a capacity with the amount of data faster. Like when you say a neural network, do you mean like what, like what's happening at the data level? Just so some of our, um, you know, uh, readers, watchers can kind of get a sense of what this is. Yeah, exactly. So I guess we'll start at the early neural networks, because I think last time I, I said something to that effect, but uh, the truth is, <laughs> I'm not sure that's necessarily the case anymore. Anyway, so we'll, we'll start from the beginning and unpack it. So a neural network is, you can think of a neural network, if we can all imagine the picture, it's sort of just like a, a series of circles stacked on top of each other like that. And each of those individual circles in that in that uh, depiction is its own just kind of linear model kind of thing. So So really what a neural network is, is, you're sort of stacking linear models on top of each other. And we can think of this as a way to make 
complex correlations between some sort of input data, right? So we have a first layer that processes the initial information and then gives you some, some, some output intuition about what that information is. Then you have another layer that sort of takes that derived information, processes it more, and then you learn a little bit more about the about whatever task you're doing, the input data through these, these individual layers. And the thing that really ties it together is actually, in, not to get too technical, but you know, in between these layers, there's something called an activation function. And on a technical level, that sort of injects in non-linearity is what it's called. So that's what makes a neural network not the same as a linear model, because you have this additional non-linearity that allows it to make very complex relationships. That's kind of- Right, but it's like the mathematics and statistics that are happening on a much higher, more complex level than we typically used to do when we're doing it sort of manually ourselves. And, it, and it's done in a fraction of a second with big data sets. So I think that's for our viewers, it's just a way to think about, okay, that's like, like this is not some new hocus pocus. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's, yeah. it's really fun, founded in, in data and you know in, in the type of fundamental analysis we used to do just at a high level. Now, yeah. what is this then? The generative pre-trained transformer, you know, chat GPT, and then there's a right. three version and a four version. Maybe you could just tell us what that is. Sure. And, if you could, and if, then you could just follow up right after that with what's the state of the art right now with respect right. to chatbots? Sure. Okay. So uh, there's a couple of things, uh, sort of history that we can unpack with understanding what this is. So, so chat GPT, generative pre-training, that's what GPT stands for, um, is really a, a process and a model. So I'll try to explain that. So the model is called a transformer. So about in 2017, this new concept sort of hit the AI world. It was called uh, um, attention. And attention was a new way to process data. It sort of allowed the neural network to understand how data fit together more broadly. So, so it, it basically allowed the model to say, let's focus on this piece of data and correlate it with this piece of data. And that sort of one thing uh, was the inceptive moment that launched this whole uh, large language model. So then GPT comes along and it introduces this concept of generative pre-training. Uh, and that's really just a training process where uh, it takes the transformer model and it allows it to train on massive data sets of text because the whole training procedure is to, given the previous set of words, guess the next word in the sentence. So that's the generative pre-training process where you're just sort of guessing the next word in the sentence. Um, and that, that sort of training method uh, allowed for these transformer models to train on, you know, giant corpuses of text, learn information from, you know, uh, like common crawl is what chains uh, GPT for. And uh, that's like a, a you know, a, a significant portion of the whole internet's data, not a significant portion, but anyways, you get the idea. These are- Yeah, but basically just so like, again, just to clarify, you're, you know, like what you're thinking is very simple right now. For many yeah. of us, it's like, this is new knowledge, right? New information. Right. But when you say that, the, so this, this transformer looks at, you know, words, and really the database on which it's starting to do all of its analyses, like, you know, when you type in something, you get this amazing answer back, those who have tried it. It's really calling the whole internet. I mean, as long as whatever we mean by the whole internet or close to it, it's taking a chunk of data that we've never had access to previously, or maybe we have, but not in the way that you can use it. So like, yes and no. So when I say it's trained on the whole internet or, you know, a portion of the internet, I got to stop saying that. Uh, <laughs> it's learned about language based on patterns it's learned over that like massive data set. It's not necessarily 
able to recall on like a, you know, fingertips, all that information, but it, you know, in, in theory, it could, it's not really clear how uh, all these things work, but it's identifying those patterns. Uh, and that's kind of uh, the, the point that's able to, to really learn a lot about, about the way humans interact based on uh, these data sets. Okay. So then who are the two, I mean, I think there are two key players, but can you just tell yeah. us like, who are the players right now? And then what is the current state of the art? Right. So the major players in the field right now are OpenAI, which was is now like uh, they have a deal with Microsoft. So it's OpenAI, Microsoft, uh, Google, and then Facebook, I think, is another big sort of player. So OpenAI was kind of the, the research group or the firm that uh, introduced GPT-1. They then introduced GPT-2, GPT-3, ChatGPT, which is basically, I guess I should explain, all of these uh, models are really just variants of their initial idea of GPT. They added some, some new ideas in terms of how to train them. But the real difference, like the real fundamental difference between sort of GPT-1 and GPT-3 is just like sheer size. They just showed that when you take this transformer model and you make it 27 billion parameters or whatever it is, which is like a giant model, it's able to do like an unbelievable amount of tasks. It's able to just sort of sort of do everything. And they also sort of showed through this process that these large language models have some emergent properties. So they're somehow able to learn tasks, learn to perform tasks that they were never actually trained to do. There's like this sort of, I don't know, and, and this emergent kind of intelligence that has really sort of made them so powerful. So OpenAI is kind of the leader in the field. And so they released GPT 3.5 or ChatGPT, which is what we've all sort of been taking, you know, took the world by storm. We've been using it to do absolutely everything. And now they've, they've just sort of released a couple months ago, GPT 4, which is a new variant of ChatGPT 3. They took what they learned from, from that whole process, and then they added in image analysis as well. So now GPT-4, not only does it perform better at all of the um, sort of the natural language processing tasks that, you know, the, the writing essays and, and making decisions and things like that, it also can now incorporate image data, meaning you can give it a picture of an image and say, can you describe this image for me? Or you can also do the opposite. You can say, can you generate an image for me that shows, you know, X, Y, and Z, like a, a clown dance, something like that. And it will, it, it's able to uh, integrate between a natural language and, uh, and images. So that's kind of the current state of the art, I would say. So Google is now also trying to catch up with OpenAI. They've released their own uh, new sort of chatbot they've called, I think it's called Bard. Um, and it's not fully available to the public, but they're certainly uh, trying to use these large language models. And their kind of vision, I think everyone's sort of vision is going this way, but their vision is to use these large language models as agents, is what they call them. So basically, you know, you have your Google Assistant, you have your uh, whatever you have. So their idea is to incorporate large language models into your Google Assistant, where you say, hey, Google, do buy my groceries, right? And it will be able to do it. It'll just smart enough that it can do it. And then the other sort of big player in the field, I would say, is Facebook. And they're kind of taking a slightly different approach. They're focused a little bit more on the scientific community. And then they're also trying to make these large language models smaller. Their kind of whole ethos is, you know, these large language models are 32 billion parameters. It can't really fit on anyone's computer, right? You need like this giant server that's expensive. So they're, they're, they're sort of betting on if we make them as small as possible, maybe we can 
uh, distribute them more and, and find more niche areas, or, or that's kind of, I don't know, their set of skills. Got it. Well, Joey, that's a, a very good uh, basic uh, introduction for our listeners and uh, viewers. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, I have been really occupied with this since uh, late December, early January. And you, you, you may know that uh, we just produced an editorial in collaboration with Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research and Bone and Joint Journal and Journal of Orthopedic Research, which is sort of a position statement, uh, which had two main, main features. Number one, uh, these things cannot be authors because they can't defend the, the content. And number two, that when anybody who is submitting a manuscript uses these tools, they need to declare uh, where and how they were used. But we're really, I guess, semi-panicked about the whole ethical uh, issue of somebody being able to produce a manuscript that really is made up data uh, and getting it into our literature. And uh, so we're hopeful that detection software is going to be available that can tell us in the scholarly publication community when these tools have been used. And what can you tell us about the status of that potential tool? So there are a couple of tools that are available that you know can sort of uh, try to make a prediction on whether or not the text that was generated is you know from a large language model. But um, I guess my fear is that it's sort of a, a losing battle in a way. You know, I think these large language models are going to get even better and better. And and sort of the way that some of these tools work is they compare a set of generated text to, you know, they sort of refeed it back into a reference model and they compare the outputs. They try to say, hey, is this generated text similar to, you know, a similar output we could generate from the same model or is it sufficiently different? And I think, you know, as these models get more proprietary and, and things of that nature, it might become harder and harder to, to do those detections. And, you know, uh, even if you get, you know, some some kind of scoring system. I'm not, you know, there, there's going to be uh, any number of false positives that might, uh, you know, impact real authors, and that might also be something to consider as well. So, unfortunately, I'm not sure I have a good answer on that respect. Um, but I don't necessarily see the large language models as being like a total negative, if that makes sense in that yeah. respect. Yep. Uh, I think for you know, particularly those for whom English is not their first language, um, having access to these, these, these chatbots sort of levels the playing field, so to say, where they can really focus on the science and not have to spend so much time or, or worry that their uh, the actual writing of their manuscript is, is you know, different or substandard compared to a native English speaker. Right. Yeah, we may be headed for a world where we have to ask for original data sets um, yeah. when a manuscript is submitted, uh, which I'm sure gives Christina Nelson and her team uh, a nightmare about that potential world. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's concerning. Uh, the whole ethics uh, surrounding it is concerning. Um, and uh, I, I, I hope I've always kind of envisioned this as a good guys, good guys versus bad guys and the, the good guys helping us to detect the use hopefully would be better than the bad guys who are using it for bad purposes, but it, it may be a very difficult thing, as you point out. You know, the thing that kind of, you know, and you alluded to it very early on, Joey, in your opening statement, you know, 
we started off by saying, what is artificial intelligence? And I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to get computers to think more and more like humans. I mean, that's the goal, right? And the more you can behave, sound, think like a human, you know, the closer we are to this reality or this world. But it's becoming very clear. And I think this is where some of the concerns are. I mean, obviously, they're the concerns we're talking about in the publishing field and just the way data is handled and what's going to happen in medicine. It's going to change the way we practice medicine and surgery, for example. But isn't there a real potential, uh, you, you, and I'll let you sort of think about this one, that the computers are going to be become much, much, much smarter than humans, and at some point realize humans aren't needed? Is that a possibility? I mean, I'm, I'm getting into these conspiracy theories, but like, isn't it possible that, that like, you're already, you're already showing in GPT-4 it's doing emergent, like things that we didn't anticipate it would do, it's starting to do and behave differently than we even thought it could do. Are we unleashing something we do not have control of, is the broad, I guess, more moral or ethical question. So look, I, I, there's certainly a big field, a big subset of researchers and just sort of people in the world who subscribe to that view. Uh, and I recently read some headlines that uh, uh, Dr. Jeff Hinton, who's yeah. kind of considered the godfather of AI, is starting to to voice those concerns as well. You know, the honest truth is, I I I have no idea. You know, <laughs> it's certainly, I think that, yeah, yeah. The the potential the potential is certainly scary. Like I, you know, keep coming back to the fact that you know, uh, large language models. This sort of initial idea, the classic paper for large language models, only was published in 2017. So you know, think crazy. about how the, yeah, I know. So <laughs> how much has the field of medicine changed since 2017? And then how, you know, AI is completely different. You know, the things before 2017 are almost not even like, relevant anymore. Yeah. It's a big, uh, breakneck pace of which things are changing. So it, it's, it's hard to know where things will, will move in the future. My editors who we collaborated with to do this joint editorial policy, we're thinking we're going to be writing editorials on this topic several times per year just to try to keep up with the developments. I'm sorry for stepping on you, Mo. Oh, no, no, that's so true. And I, I didn't have much more uh, specifically. It was just more, you know, you know, just just thinking about, you know, what I went through, which was, you know, again, mid 1990s, you know, when we when we were going to take data and combine it, let's say, you know, the term meta-analysis that I think is all our listeners and viewers are pretty comfortable with that yeah. term now you combine data. It was months and months and months of work, right? And yeah. then, you know, you'd have to try to, you know, and then there's always this chance you miss something because we didn't have anything mm -hmm. done. You know, you know, just knowing what's happening just with us, you know, in our own kind of work you're doing, Joey, you know, what took us months literally takes us minutes. I mean, we're, we, we can run thousands of meta-analyses in, in, in the back end of a week in a second. And to the point of the chatbot, you start typing in, well, ask a question, it will run the meta-analysis and give it to you rather than just give you a particular study that, oh, this is the most relevant study. The most, you know, the most, most of our searches right now are, you type into it, you go into a big database of studies and you say, oh, here's where, and they go, here's the most relevant studies, 97%, 94%. That just seems like, as of 2017, it's just like, it's it's not even relevant in, in the same context as now, which is, I don't want to, I don't want to read five studies. I want the answer. I think yeah. people want the answer. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to, as publishing groups, really work hard and collaborate to be able to provide answers for yeah. our community. Yeah, well, I think uh, 
On that uh, note, I wish to uh, sort of assure our audiences uh, that ortho evidence and uh, JBJS and the other scholarly publications were we're all over and committed to staying on top of this, uh, particularly the uh, trying to understand the developments, but also the the ethical issues surrounding uh, in, with the idea of preserving the basic tenet of medicine. You know, of uh, of us putting the patient first and and collecting the best scientific evidence on which to make treatment decisions. So we'll, we'll be watching. We're on the wall for the for the uh, the orthopedic community and. Joey, thanks so much. Thanks for all your excellent work at OE. Thank you. It's great stuff you you folks do, and we're greatly appreciated. And of course, we'll. I think you already have one of these uh, collectors' items or yes, some yes. mugs. So now now you'll get two. And uh, uh, maybe, thank you. you know, maybe you can give it uh, to uh, somebody uh, who is uh, you know a mentor or somebody who's really in need of a of a great prize of recognition, uh, the <laughs> Ortho Joe Traveler mug. So thanks, Joey. Thanks, Mo. Thanks for having me. Have, for having a, me have a great rest of the day and, and week.